Take your Bible this morning, one more week. We looked at it last week. We'll return to the Gospel of John next week. But turn in your Bible this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And I would love to be able to read for you that entire chapter. It's really just 13 verses. It's not too long. But in the honor of God's Word, would you stand with me as we read from the Word of God in Isaiah chapter 6, the vision that he encountered in the temple when he saw the Lord. Follow along as I read in Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe was or filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard a voice, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, or their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities uh, lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Father, we would look unto you this day, be our teacher as we study your word, as we see a glimpse of what Isaiah saw in that temple. And then, Lord, I would pray that you would lead us into communion, into the Lord's table, that we would be able to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. So, Lord, we love you. Open our minds, our ears, our hearts to this teaching that we might see you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, certainly as we come this morning to Isaiah 6, we looked last week at it as well and don't need to recover what I did last week, but we really built it around the theme of the holiness of God. Obviously, the holiness of God is one of the characteristics of God. We say one of the 
perfections of God. Sometimes we can classify that and call those the attributes of God. In other words, when we speak of God, we speak of his person, his character, his attributes that make up the character of God. I think in one sense, when you look down at the end of verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. I've always understood his glory to be the combination of all of his attributes, of all of his character, of all of his personhood. He is glorious. But one of those attributes within his character is his holiness. And when we talk about the holiness of God, if you just take the words and they're divided out a certain way because the Word of God describes God as holy. Jesus in the New Testament is called the Holy One. But holiness is really God's sovereignty. It refers to His Lordship. When you think of the holiness of God, it is to set Him apart from everyone and everything. He is literally the word means to be set apart and to be a cut above, if you will. It is to separate him from all other in his character. And when we look at his character, his character is exalted above everything. And here, the seraphim are exalting God's holiness to the highest degree. It is to say that he is utterly majestic, that he is utterly transcendent, that he is utterly holy. And of course, when we're asked to be holy as he is holy, we would recognize that God's holiness is so infinitely greater than ours. But he exceeds certainly all comparisons. He is majestic and totally set apart. We might even use that phrase, he is in a league all by himself. When you speak of his holiness, it is to say that he is inherently great. There is absolutely no compromise in his character. He is distinct from us in that he's exalted above us. He is unique. He is obviously morally perfect. He knows no sin. He knows no taint of sin. His sin has never even breached his holy character. He is, in that sense, morally perfect. Now, one of the clearest expressions of God's holiness is found in Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, remember I said last week that Isaiah the prophet probably prophesied for close to 40 years, and he prophesied during the reign of four different kings. And so it was 40 years, he spanned over 40 uh, or four different kings in that reign, or at least I should say he prophesied in that reign. And Uzziah, who's mentioned in one of those reigns, where it says in the year that Uzziah died, he was a good king. In fact, it somewhat, he uses that phrase of Uzziah that he was one who did right in the sight of the Lord. He ascended the throne when he was 16. You can imagine a 16-year-old being, being the king. And Uzziah reigned for 52 years. And though he did right many things in the eyes of the Lord, and though he was 
considered a king that brought reform and brought prosperity to the nation of Israel. If you look up in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, though he began in glory, we might say his life ended in, ended in shame. He went into the temple, he offered a sacrifice in that temple, and he contracted leprosy and then died in exclusion with that leprosy because he took on the role of a priest. What's interesting is you walk into Isaiah chapter 6, some of the other prophets in the Old Testament, their call is given in chapter 1. I'm thinking specifically of Jeremiah. He was called by God in Jeremiah chapter 1. If you turn and look at some point at the book of Ezekiel, he was called by God in Ezekiel chapter 1. Here, Isaiah is a bit different. We pick up Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you take the time to read chapters 1 through 5, you can see that though there was at times prosperity in the nation of Israel, you read in Isaiah 1 through 5 about drunkenness. You read about deceit. You read about the people of Israel just going away from the commitment to their God. Now imagine all of that happening within the nation. And here in 6.1, it was the year that King Uzziah died. He had been reigning for 52 years, and it had provided them some form of stability. But that one who was king was now dead. And so the nation was very, very troubled. But what terrified Israel was a man by the name of Tiglath Pileser III. He was the king of Assyria. He was mounting his troops to conquer all the kingdoms that spanned between the Euphrates and the Nile River. And so Isaiah picks this text up. Look at 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. Isaiah encounters God's holiness in the temple. And what the Lord does here is direct us to the true king. And what Isaiah chapter 6 gives us is three features, if you will, to understand God's holiness. Three features, at least, that we can walk through in Isaiah chapter 6 that you might see and feel and hear what Isaiah did that particular day in the temple. First, he saw a holy God. Then we recognize, secondly, a humble servant. And then thirdly, he was given a hard message. So we see a holy God, a humble servant. And then thirdly, a hard message. Let's just remind ourselves what we saw last week. First, he saw a holy God. Look here in chapter 6-1, and we're not... We know it was the year that he died, but when it was, was it before, was it after? But in the year that King Uzziah died, here's what Isaiah said. He said, I saw the Lord. And I just want to point this out to you again. Whom he saw that day was the Lord. And there's a, there's a name for the Lord here. In the Hebrew, it's Adonai. He saw the Lord. And you know that it's Adonai because in the Hebrew, it's Adonai. But it's capital L small lowercase o, small lowercase r, and then d. He gives 
that name he saw Adonai. You'll note in verse 3, though, that one called to another, when we get down there, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And there, you'll note that the word Lord in the translation is all in caps. We might say all uppercase. So you've got Adonai in verse 1, I saw the Lord. But in verse 3, the seraphim are crying out, Lord, and it's the sacred name for God. It's the name Yahweh, okay? You say, well, Scott, what's the difference? Well, Yahweh in verse 3, all caps, is the sacred name for God, if you go back to verse 1 and you see there, I saw the Lord, he saw Adonai, that is, to the Jewish people, the supreme title for God. So in other words, you got the sacred name in verse 3, but in verse 1, you have the sacred or supreme title for God. You say, well, what does that mean in verse 1 when he saw the Lord? Well, he saw Adonai. This is what Isaiah is saying through the inspiration of the Scripture is I saw the sovereign one. That's what he saw. So in the year that Israel loses their human king, he sees the true king, the sovereign Lord in his glory. Now, you'll note there that not only did he see Adonai, but look how he's positioned in verse 1. He's sitting upon the throne. In other words, they just lost their human king. Tiglath-Pileser is mounting his troops to come at any kingdom that is in his way. And here Isaiah sees Adonai, and he is presiding. He is the sovereign king. He is sitting on the throne. Look again in verse 1. He's high and lifted up. He's ruling over heaven and earth. So he sees Adonai in all of his wonderful glory. And then it says, and it speaks of these in verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. These seraphim have been created by God and have been given these special features as these seraphim attend to the holiness of God. They're given, if you will, in this picture, six wings. They've got two wings that cover their face, two wings that cover their feet. With two wings they fly. And here they, it is said that these wings cover their face because obviously they hover, if you will, and when they do, they are exposed to his full glory, and no creature can see and behold that and live. They minister, if you will, before the unveiled glory of God, and so they have to shield their face from the brightness of his glory. We said it would be like standing right in front of the sun. It would blind you, but obviously his glory is infinitely brighter than the sun that he created. In fact, we know that God lives in unapproachable light. No one has seen his full glory. So as these seraphim, as Isaiah sees that vision of Adonai, the sovereign supreme one, sitting high and exalted, these seraphim are above his glory, and with two they're shielding their face, and with two, if you look again, they, they cover their face, and then they cover their feet, and I think it's best to understand these two wings that 
cover their feet because angels themselves are created beings, and they cover their feet because they are in the presence of God in His glory. And I think it would be like Moses when he told him to remove his sandals, you are on holy ground. And then it says that these seraphim have been given two wings, if you will, to fly. They flutter, if you will. They hover, and they hover like a helicopter. They're not taking off on a runway. They have these wings, and it allows them to move swiftly around the throne of God, obeying the will of God. They do His will in every instant perfectly and with absolute obedience. But I think the thing that you notice here in Scripture is not the description of the angels, It's the message of the angels. Look at verse 3. And one, speaking of the seraphim, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They are crying out in antiphonal praise, if you will. Holy, then holy. Holy, and they're crying out in praise around the throne of God. So they lose Uzziah, the human king. But he sees, if you will, Adonai. And these seraphim are there. And they're crying out in antiphonal praise back and forth, holy, holy, holy. In fact, we, I think some people commonly think it's the Trinity, but I don't think so. This is a Hebrew um, device of speech given for emphasis. They're crying out at the character of God. They're crying out, hear this, he's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's the only place in Scripture, I should say it's the only attribute of God in Scripture where anybody is stating that God is thrice something. In other words, you don't see in Scripture mercy, mercy, mercy. You don't see faithful, faithful, faithful. You don't see that he's wrath, wrath, wrath. But here in the temple that day, they are crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's very similar to Revelation chapter 4, where the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who is and who was, or who was and who is, and who is to come. Listen, as they're crying out, holy, 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 in the Lord that day, look at Isaiah 6, 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. In other words, the temple was filling with smoke, or it had filled with smoke. You say, what do you mean smoke? I think it's an expression, beloved, of the extraordinary sense of God's presence. In fact, in Revelation chapter 15, verse 8, there it was seen that the smoke was filling the temple. And I think you remember in the Old Testament where the priest went into the temple and they could no longer conduct their priestly function because the smoke had filled the temple. And so here, not only is the train of his robe filling the temple and kind of filling up everything in the temple to the point where it's pressing out everything else as that train is filling the temple, smoke is filling the temple. It is the visible sign of the presence of holy God was in that place. 
I mean, obviously no one can see God and live, Moses said in Exodus chapter 33. So God often would show himself in a visible form of his presence in this smoke, if you will. And so I think that's what it was. It is an extraordinary sense of his presence. So it's against this backdrop that Isaiah encounters a holy God. But then secondly, I want you to notice this, that he becomes a humble servant. Look at his response to this, which I find fascinating, and you know this to be true. He said in verse 5 to Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, it's from that backdrop of seeing a holy God that he will be transformed into a humble, broken servant. In other words, he encounters God's holiness. And as he sees God's character, as he sees his perfection, as he sees him high and lifted up, as he sees him sitting, if you will, presiding over the temple and over the earth, and as the train begins to fill the temple and a smoke begins to fill that temple, he encounters his own sin. In fact, look what he said again in verse 5. It's graphic in the language. He said there in 5, woe is me. In other words, it doesn't just mean like I'm in trouble, though he was in trouble. You know, and I won't take the time to show you that, woe in the scripture is a pronouncement of a curse. In other words, when he encounters God in his beauty, when he encounters God in his holiness, when he sees God for who he is, he is completely undone and he pronounced a curse on himself. In fact, beloved, more than the shaking of the temple in verse 4, he is shaking before a holy God. He is shattered. The text says there in verse 5, at least in the ESV, for I am lost. In other words, I am undone. In other words, he's saying in the vernacular, I'm shattered. I'm literally unraveling at the seams. I am coming apart at the seams. I'm disintegrating. In other words, as he saw God, he saw his own sin. As he saw a holy God, he is, in this sense, a humble servant. You say, well, how did he see his sin? Look at the text. He said there, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And you say, why does he see his lips as unclean? Well, I think as a prophet, his lips are the instrument for proclamation. And what Isaiah does in this encounter with a holy God, he says, I'm a dirty man with a dirty mouth. In other words, compared to God's holiness, he was utterly filthy. In fact, he, he says there in verse 5, he said, I am a people, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm a pe- I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He uses the word brought out in Scripture to speak of a, of a leper. Remember, a leper in the New Testament had to go about shouting as he or she would walk in the street, unclean, unclean, unclean. They had to tell people, they're a leper and I'm unclean, or else they would be in some measure condemned. And so here it was, maybe the most holy man in all of the Israel, of Israel was confronted with the sin even of his 
own lips. You say, well, what brought him to this? Look down in the Bible. It's right there. Here's what brought him to that awareness. For, he says in 6.5, my eyes, I love this phrase, have seen the king. He says, the Lord of hosts. What a tremendous, tremendous picture. In the presence of the one before whom the seraphim veiled their faces, the one in whom the presence, the seraphim covered their feet. He was no longer the preacher who exposed the sinfulness of his people. He was now the servant standing before his master, his sin exposed before his all-seeing, all-knowing, all-holy gaze. And so he's undone. He's, he's unraveling. And you know, beloved, this He's not the only guy who encountered the person of God in Scripture. He's not the only one who encountered the holiness of God or the fear of God. In fact, every time, frankly, someone has a vision of God in Scripture, there was an absolute terror and then even a recognition of their own sin. In other words, no one comes before the holiness of God without a sense of utter devastation. In fact, I'll just cite a few. I think these will come up on the screen. When Abraham, in Genesis 18, was in the presence of God, it was before the angel of the Lord, and those men had visited him and Sarah. And it says in Genesis 18, 27, Behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. And then it says there, he says, undertaken to speak to the Lord, but he says, I, who am I, who am I, but dust and ashes. In other words, when he encountered the visible presence of the Lord, he was aware of his own humanness and aware of his utter sin. When Gideon encountered the Lord in Judges 6, and in verse 22, he perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not, what? Die. There was a great sense of the fear of God. There was a great sense of the holiness of God. And when somebody encountered the person of God, there was a great sense and magnitude of their own sin and his utter transcendence. When you get to the end of Job, and Job asked him on the next slide, he asked him like 77 questions, did God? But here's what Job said in 42, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He said, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Or, so the other one, the previous one was Manoah, but here he repented in dust and ashes. Peter, do you remember when he went fishing all night and he caught nothing and the Lord caught up with Peter in Luke 5.8? He said, cast your net on the other side of the boat. This is fascinating. He spent all night fishing caught nothing. He's a professional fisherman. The Lord says, cast your net on the other side. He cast the net on the other side, and there was so many fish in the net that the net begin, began to break and become, become apart. What's interesting is his response there in 5.8, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. 
In other words, when these Bible characters from Abraham, Gideon, Manoah, Job, Peter encountered the, the very person of God, they were keenly aware of their own sin. Remember John the Apostle in that island, on, or excuse me, on that island in the vision that he had on the island of Patmos in Revelation 1, where he saw one like a son of man. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white, his like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And here's what John the Apostle said when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. In other words, when these people, when these Bible characters got in the holiness of God, they saw God in his person. They saw the angel of the Lord in his beauty, and it always led to a devastation of their own sin, even terror. What's amazing today, if I could just extrapolate just for a second is this seems to be lost in most churches. In fact, I would think that very few, not, not all, are presenting such a high view of God that people would be able to recognize his character, recognize his beauty, recognize his transcendence, and fall down before him. We live, beloved, you know, in a very pragmatic age. And I believe in that sense we've abandoned any sense of the holiness of God. In fact, let me read to you some quotes that come out of articles and magazines stated by preachers in what their goal is before their people. Okay? These are direct quotes. These are statements made by both people and by preacher regarding the preaching that comes out in the pulpit. Quote, no fire and brimstone here. No Bible thumping, just practical witty messages. Services, quote, have an informal feeling. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome and not drive them away. Seems to be the, the desire of many today. Listen, I don't want, if some of you are new, I don't want to drive you away. I don't want to Bible thump if, if that's a word. We want you to feel welcomed. We want you to feel loved. However, to not refer to the doctrine of hell could be one of the most unkind things that a pastor can do. Another magazine article said, as with all clergymen, this pastor's answer is God, but he just slips him in at the end. And even then, he doesn't get heavy. No ranting, no raving, no fire, no brimstone. He doesn't even use the H word. Call it light gospel. It has the same salvation as the old-time religion, but with a third less guilt. I mean, that's... There's very few coming into the temple seeing what Isaiah's seen because in most cases, pastors are, if you will, giving away their responsibility. 
Another one said this, quote, sermons are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation and hellfire. Preaching here is sophisticated, urban, friendly talk. It breaks all stereotypes. We live in a unique day. The pastor, another one said, is preaching a very upbeat message. The ideal is not so much being saved from the fire of hell, rather it is being saved from the meaninglessness in this life. It's more of a soft sell. Went on to say that the idea is to get people through the front doors then disprove the stereotype of the sweating, Bible-thumping preacher who screams about burning in hell for eternity. This is a serious thing today. If I put that together, preaching is to be informal, it's to be positive, it's to be brief, it's to be friendly. Never let them see you sweat. Never use the H word. But as you go back to some of the great men of God over the centuries, it was a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. Do you know that name? Do we still quote Tozer today? Listen to what Tozer wrote in 1955. What is that, 54 years ago? He said, for centuries, quote, the church stood solidly against every form of worldly entertainment. But of late, she has become the she has become tired of the abuse and has given over the struggle. She appears to have decided that if she cannot conquer the great God entertainment, she is mel- may as well join forces with him. So today we have the astonishing spectacle of millions of dollars being poured into the unholy job of providing earthly entertainment for the so-called sons of heaven. Religious entertainment in many places rapidly crowding out the serious things of God. Many churches these days have become little more than poor theaters where fifth-rate producers peddle their shoddy wares with full approval of evangelical leaders who can even quote a text in defense of their delinquency. And Tozer said 54 years ago, hardly a man dares raise his voice against God. It's just a a sad day. And I'm not trying to say here that we need to be unloving or unkind, but I am telling you we're not going to compromise from what we find in the book. And what we find in the book is God's character displayed in all of his glory. In fact, one best-selling book, Advocating Church Growth, suggested this. And he's looking back, if you will, and into previous century, he suggested how the corner tavern used to be the place where men of the neighborhood would congregate to watch major sports events like the World Series or pro boxing matches. That same concepts can still be used to great impact by the church. Most churches have a large hall or auditorium which could be used for special gatherings built around major media events like sports, political debates, entertainment and the like. Everything, beloved, is being watered down. But here, for Isaiah, when he encounters a view and a vision of Adonai in the temple, he sees him high and lifted up. 
He sees the train of his robe filling the temple. He sees the seraphim, if you will, their faces shielded by their wings to the blazing glory of God. He sees their feet covered because they're before the holy presence of God. He sees them equipped, if you will, with these wings that can move rapidly to the obedience of Christ. And as he encounters a holy God, he becomes a holy servant. One Theologian said that God's holiness awakens in the awe-stricken creature a feeling of total incompetence, of being no longer in control, even undoneness, unless reassured by God's fascinating grace is to turn and flee from him lest he die. What a picture. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what that would do with Isaiah's uh, personal worth about his own self-image at this point. We seem to be so concerned with self-image. And here was Isaiah before God, and what he senses is not the release of the sin, but the responsibility that I've sinned with my lips and I live with a people of unclean lips. But praise God, in his mercy, he didn't leave them that way. Look at the text, if you will, in verse 6. No, he didn't leave him like that. He said at the end in 5, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. So this seraphim, I don't want to look too far into the account here, he didn't just go pick up one of the tongs. He, or pick up the coal, he goes and grasps, if you will, the tong, and he takes it to him. Look at verse 7. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What is this touch of his mouth? It's a touch of mercy, is it not? It is an act of grace. The seraph, if you will, touched a red hot coal, to the most sensitive part of the body, his mouth. It grabbed it from the altar. In other words, it was a sacrifice, and your guilt here to Isaiah the prophet is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. And so as he's confronted with his own sin, he becomes a humble servant. Look at verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. You'll note there, obviously, in verse 8, it's the first time that the Lord spoke here. He heard, it says, the voice of the Lord. You say, do people hear the voice of the Lord? All the time in the Old Testament. The New Testament writers were inspired. He heard, hear, the voice of the Lord. And so he says there that famous statement, here am I, send me. God, here is my life. This is us as we come to communion. Here is my soul. Here are my gifts. Here is my body. Here are my relationships. Here is my pocketbook, if, if you will. Isaiah says here to God, I'm eager to be spent for you. Amazing. In other words, in the midst of Seeing a holy God, he becomes a humble servant. Send me, but I don't mean to disappoint you. You know what kind of message he was given? Thirdly and finally, he was given a hard 
message. You say, well, what kind of hard message was he given? Look at verse 9. Thinking of some of the men who are here at the Master's Seminary in training for us. Starry-eyed of how the Lord might use them. Have you ever considered how Isaiah was called and ordained? I mean, if this is his commissioning service, if this is his ordination service, and he said, here I am, and he was a prophet, he spoke with his lips, he prophesied, and when he was called here in chapter 6, here's what he said, the voice of the Lord, verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, I'm always thinking, how long? A week? A month? A half a year? Maybe it'll take me a year to turn around this church? No, look at verse 11. He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. They are going to be taken away into captivity. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the in the midst of the land, and though it says a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth of an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. In other words, he says, I'm going to commission you. You saw a holy God. You became a humble servant, but Isaiah, here's your commission. I'm giving you a hard message. It's a hard message. You're going to go and preach And they're going to hear, verse 9, but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, maybe even visibly, the prophet, but they're not going to perceive. They're going to keep on seeing, but they're not perceiving, and the heart of this people is going to become dull. Isaiah 6.10 is one of the most quoted statements in all of the Old Testament in in the New Testament. What a hard message. And yet everything today seems to be built around success. Everything today seems to be built around bigger is better. Everything today seems to be built around the show. And if you're going to make the show, then lighten up in your preaching. Don't pass an offering basket. Don't sing the hymn we sang this morning. Take the Bible out of the rack. And all these such things is is what goes on. But he gives him a, a hard message How long? Not weeks, not months. No, until cities lie ruined. Some of you men training for the ministry need to remember that. It's it's not an easy message. How would you like this to be your commission at your ordination service? Holy God, a humble servant and a hard message. Let me just remind you as we walk into communion that the only way we can be holy is by faith in God the Lord Jesus Christ. He's holy. You know that he calls us to be holy, but the only way that you or I could ever be holy is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his death that God imputes his holiness to us who believe. In fact, it says of us, if I use this word, positionally holy, And then secondly, practically holy. 
positionally, we've already been made holy if you're in Christ. It says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, as we've already sang, then listen, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from all sin, past, present, and even future. That's our position in Christ. But we do sin, and so we need to ask his forgiveness, and we need to be holy, and that's called practical holiness. So positionally, we've been made holy. He sees us as holy, but practically, we need to live in such a way that reflects our position. But only God can cleanse you from your sin at his cross. Only God can make you holy, and he does so through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, beloved, the truth is this, is we pass the bread and pass the cup. Christ died because God is holy. He died because God is holy and no one gets into his presence without righteousness. And you don't have righteousness and I don't have righteousness. And so you fall down on your knees and beat your breast like the publican in Luke 18 and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so listen, as we come to the Lord's table, we're recognizing the utter uniqueness of God, the utter transcendence of God. And in his great infinite wisdom, he sent his only beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in your place. So the reason your sin is forgiven is because of what a holy God has done for you in Christ. But I'll finish the sentence. Through faith. You've got to cry out to him. In fact, in here, there's an amazing statement in Isaiah 6 that even their preaching will render them judgment. He judicially, judicially judges them. But in other passages, there's a wide open mercy of the gospel being given, and that gospel could be given even right here this day, that the only way you can share Christ and share his righteousness is through faith in him. Faith is the channel upon which the scripture has said that you look away from yourself, look away from your own doing, and look to Christ and see what he has done. Can I show you one other really cool thing? Look over in your Bible to John chapter 12. I, I want you to see this. It's, it's actually mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. In John chapter 12, we were there earlier this year, but do you remember in John chapter 12, he is talking there about the Son of Man being lifted up. And, and he exhorted them in the openness and the freedom of the gospel in 1236, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of the light. So if you're here without Christ, even this morning, while you have the light, the light is going out in the preached word. You are to believe in the light. There's hope that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things there in 36b, he departed, interesting, and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. He performed miracle after miracle, and they still didn't believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled here it is. This is Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he 
heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, here it is, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and in turn I would heal them. Oh, there's a judicial blinding there, a hardening there, right? That they could not believe in verse 39, but he said in verse 36, while they have the light, believe in the light. You say, well, Scott, how could it be both things? It's always both things. I hold out to you the mercy of the gospel even this morning. If you're here without a saving relationship of the gospel, I freely give you the gospel. I freely command you to repent and believe. The gospel is given to all without distinction, if you will, and without discrimination. And yet at the same time, when people turn from that gospel given, their heart becomes hard. But I wanted to show you this verse in 41. Isaiah said these things, watch this, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. It's incredible. If you look at verse 41, it goes back to the antecedent of who's being discussed here, and who's being discussed here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw, said these things because he saw his glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Isaiah spoke of him. Here's what John the Apostle is saying, that in the temple that day, when Isaiah saw Adonai, he was beholding the pre-incarnate glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship this morning. You say, well, how could that be? Well, because it says right there that in 1241, and we also understand that that Old Testament term, Adonai, used in Isaiah 6.1, is the equivalent in the New Testament of the Greek term for Lord, and it's called kurios. So Adonai, if you will, the sovereign one in the Old Testament is equated with kurios in the New Testament. In fact, let me show you. Look over to the book of Philippians. I want to make sure you understand this right. In Philippians, I think you know the account where it's talking about his humiliation and just think about it as we go into the Lord's table here. But it's in Philippians 2 being found, and I'm in Philippians 2.8, in, in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. You see this? And bestowed on him the what? The name, you know that, that is above what? Every name. And what name is that? I'll show you. And so that at the name, he says of Jesus, people always think it's Jesus because of verse 10. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Who Isaiah encountered in the temple was Adonai. And as part of the Trinity, Adonai in the New Testament is acquainted with Kyrios, Lord. He saw a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the God we worship? Is that the, the Christ we worship? 
Listen, listen, I, we want to enjoy our relationships in this place. Amen. We want to love. But listen, we need to have a right understanding of who God is. And so may it be fitting that as we go now into the Lord's table that we can look and see him for who he is.